It was uh, my wife's birthday today, and I asked her what she wanted for her birthday, and she says, can you preach a good sermon for once? <laughs> I, I said, no. I also, <laughs> trying to be the, the great romancer that I am, uh, and being British, that's not much of a, uh, a compliment, I can assure you. I said, oh, my wife's 25 today, and then I realized I have an 18-year-old daughter, so I said quickly, nope, <laughs> I was just kidding, she is not 25. But... Um, Any questions on what I may or may not have done can be reserved for after when some of you inquire, as you tend to. Um, we are going to slow down a little bit because this is a very unique verse that sort of arises almost surprisingly at this point. If, if it was the end of the, of the gospel, it might not be so surprising, but it, it is a little bit um, of a, a summary statement of sorts. But then we have another chapter. Some call the chapter 21 an appendix of types. But regardless, we're going to look at these two verses. Verse 30 and 31. And for those of you who don't know what Cole's notes are, I think they turn to cliff notes. If you're old enough to know what Cole's notes are, uh, well done. Uh, and I hope you made good use of them as I did in high school. Why, why enjoy reading a good book when you can just skim and uh, cheat? by reading Cole's notes. So I, I actually don't have any time for Cole's notes people uh, because they've lost the love of actually reading. They're just using it as an en- a means to an end. Um, but Cole's notes, you'll have to do some research on what they are. Then there's, I th- think, Spark notes today. What's the latest? Spark, yes, uh, Henry, yeah, I see. Classic case of a Sparks notes guy right there. Yeah. Well, you're married. You're indestructible now, brother. Verse 30, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that what John has uh, so powerfully and simply but eloquently written for our good, may be for our good, and that we may be those who uh, obey these words, that we may have life in Christ's name because we believe, because we have seen who Jesus is and taken him for ourselves. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, most of you know that Jesus was the son of a carpenter, and in the first century, um, uh, sons would, would typically... Uh, do what their father did. So he uh, would have spent time uh, making things. And we don't know exactly what, but I have thought about if Jesus decided one day to, you know, uh, not work and uh, muck about with his friends and stuff and comes in five minutes before uh, the day is over and says, oh, uh, I was supposed to build a table and then just uh, goes, whew, there you go, there's a nice table according to my divine power. There's a table that's made perfectly. Uh, Would that have been in accordance with what we read of Christ in the Gospels? And um, I think there are some people who have this idea that you know he just performed miracles, but that's not really the 
picture we get in the Gospels of Jesus um, just doing them for the sake of doing them. So no, I don't believe that he would have done uh, something else like go play with his mates and then come in and quickly uh, produce a table miraculously uh, to the, the most uh, unbelievable dimensions and quality that one has ever seen. Uh, now, having said that, we have to then inquire as to why he did perform signs, as they are called in John's Gospel. Notice what he says, now Jesus did many other signs. And we have to understand that God does offer signs. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, we are told that God offers signs. For what can be known about God is plain to them. That is the godless in the context of Romans 1 where Paul is writing. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them, not obscure, because God has shown it to them. Namely, what? His invisible attributes, His power, His divine nature have been, what? Clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. His divine attributes, His power, His wisdom, His goodness, His love have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, there is no justifiable excuse for someone to walk in this world and perceive the things in this world and come to the conclusion that there is no God. That is the height of wickedness. To look at God's masterpiece and to say, there is no Creator. But more than that, you want to heighten the guilt of mankind. Imagine God coming into the world and performing signs according to His power and His love and His goodness and still saying, no, I will not believe. That's the issue that John is dealing with. His whole Gospel is the issue of how do we get people to believe. Now, what were the signs? He says there are many other signs, but what were the signs that he did? And if you were to think about how many signs that Jesus did, we can't really know. It must have been extraordinary because we're told that he went about in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, doing good and healing those who were oppressed by the devil. He would go into villages and towns and perhaps cure people of every known disease that they had at that time. Sometimes we have what's called a presbytery and people who want to become ministers have to be examined. You'll be happy to know that. And sometimes the questions that get asked are not particularly difficult. I don't think they are. But when they have sweat pouring down their forehead and their hands are shaking and you love to see it. Sometimes they get asked, can you tell us the seven signs in John's Gospel? And you'd be amazed at how they get to two or three, and then it's, they're struggling for life. Now you remember it begins in John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana where he turns the water into wine. And the disciples saw his glory. And glory and signs are usually kept connected to one another. The healing of the nobleman's son at the end of chapter 
4 and chapter 5, you see how it was merely Jesus saying, it will be done, and he was to believe, and the accent there is upon the faith of the nobleman whose son was deathly ill, and the miracle, the sign was performed. There was a man at the pool of Siloam who was the invalid for 38 years and could not get into this pool, which he thought had healing properties when it started to move. He said, there's nobody to lift me into the pool. And Jesus says to him, take up your mat and walk. And he is healed. Then you have the feeding of the 5,000 in John chapter 6. And likely, that is, heads of household. So it could have been anywhere from 20 to 30,000, maybe more, maybe less. But the point is, Jesus filled the bellies of tens of thousands of people. After that, he walks on water. So you go to John chapter 6 and he walks on water. And again, he's not just walking on water because he's once and says, look at me, I can walk on water. He's walking on water because it is a marker of his identity of who he is. He is the bridegroom in John chapter 2 who provides what is lacking. He is the one who is able to feed people in John chapter 6. He walks on water and we learn from Job's, gospel, Job's uh, book sorry, that it was Yahweh who walked or trampled on the waves of the sea and was about to pass Job by. But then in the Gospel account, we read the literature tells us that Jesus was going to pass by the disciples. But then He stops and He reveals Himself. I am He. He's performing a sign, but it's a sign of His identity, of who He is. One of the great chapters, I think, in the Scriptures, if you want to bring together personality, a little bit of humor, theology, and so forth, is John chapter 9, where the healing of the man born blind from earth. And you get to that point where this is such an incredible sign that Jesus is performing because He will say, the man who was born blind, no one has ever heard, no one has ever heard since the creation of the world, the eyes of the blind being opened. Now, why was that so significant? Well, because in Isaiah, for example, we are told that the Messianic age will be characterized by those who are blind being able to see. This was a sign that is unique to Jesus. And then you get to chapter 11, one of the greatest miracles you can conceive of, bringing back the dead to life, Lazarus. So you have these seven signs and these seven signs are given by John. And he has said, now Jesus did many other signs. What they were, we don't know. And John is being purposefully selective. I, I imagine this must have been a little bit traumatizing for John because he's got this chance to write a gospel. And can you imagine what it's like uh, oh, remember when he did this and this and this and wanting to, to put forth all of these signs? Had my, as some of you know, uh, garage professionally organized and cleaned out. And the lady who came, bless her heart, she would uh, call me outside and she would say, um, you want to get rid of this, don't you? Basically, I would be like, okay, fine. And she's done this, right? So she knows when people are holding on to things that they don't really need to hold on to. 
And I'm like, yes, I wear that torn golf club. I haven't golfed for ages, and I usually sin when I do, but I plan to wear that golf club, uh, golf glove. Um, yeah, no, get rid of that. And then she started saying, you want to get rid of that, don't you? I just I wanted to throw her into the back of the truck. <laughs> but she was doing a good job. John's having to be purposefully selective in what he keeps, but also what he doesn't say. And he gives us seven signs to show us the perfection of Christ's ministry. And he says, these were done in the presence of the disciples. He's not even saying, well, I heard he did this. I heard he did that. He was an eyewitness of his glory. In John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. We saw this. We didn't hear about this. We saw this. At the end of this Gospel in chapter 21, he says, this is the disciple. He never calls himself by name, but we know it to be him. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know the testimony is true. Why? Because we are eyewitnesses of his glory. And he did many miraculous signs. Remember the chief priests and the Pharisees? They gathered Uh, in council together, and they said, what are we going to do? In John chapter 11, verse 47, for this man performs many signs. He did it publicly. But it wasn't just about the signs, though that is important. John says in verse 25 of chapter 1, Now there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That's why he's selective. Because if he were to say, you know what, I have to mention everything, we would have Bibles filling this room with page upon page upon page, which is actually quite scary in one respect. Why is it scary? Because if you look at the response to Jesus during His earthly ministry, despite the fact that He performed signs that could fill this building, people still would not believe. And that's why John is writing this Gospel. So Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. And these signs, you have to understand, are revelations of who He is. That is why you also get the seven I Am sayings. Another good question at Presbytery. What were the seven signs? What were the seven I Am sayings? I am the bread of life. Right after He is providing this food for thousands of people. He is saying something about who He really is. I am the bread of life. I could feed five billion people. But you're missing the point if you don't understand that the source of nourishment in your life is from Me. I am the light of the world. You will only ever walk in darkness concerning this world, concerning God, concerning who you are, concerning whoever one else is. If you don't believe in me, you will not see. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. If you want to enter into the kingdom, if you want to enter into the fold, I am the door. Nobody comes in except through me. But I am also the good shepherd. He's the door. He's the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
And in John chapter 10, he says, I have the power to lay it down. I also have the power to raise it up. The greatest sign of all is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it's a revelation of who he is. He's the good shepherd. That's why you get in chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Not just I can raise people, but I am the resurrection. If there is any resurrection, it will be through me and because of me. I am the resurrection and the life. He will say in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If there is a way, if there is a door, if there is truth, if there is life, it is through me. And you know there are ministers who ostensibly call themselves Christian ministers who will just deny that basic principle. Jesus will say something abundantly clear and for some reason we will do our best to say, well, you know, times have changed. There are some things that are difficult to understand. I admit that. There are some things that are very easy to understand. And when they are easy to understand, you better believe them. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And He is the vine. I am the vine. In John chapter 15, if there's any life in you, if there's any nourishment into your soul, where does it come from? It comes from Christ. Every I am saying is saying that Really, there's no spiritual life in you unless it's from Christ. And there is no hope for you unless it is through Christ. And there is no way in which you will be saved in this world unless it is by Christ. I am. I am. I am. God revealed Himself in the Old Testament. How? I am who I am. And in the New Testament, He fills in all of those I am's through Jesus Christ. There are many other signs done by this distinct individual who is the great I Am. And he was also a preacher. Why do you think he didn't put in more signs than the ones we have? Because he also had to tell us that there's something that really we need to grasp. It's not just about the signs. It's about the message of the one who performed the signs. Now, if there are seven signs... And there are seven I am sayings. How many public sermons do you think there will be? Now, let me pick on someone not particularly intelligent. Uh, Dylan. Seven, right? You'd go with seven there. He didn't have much choice. Seven public sermons. You must be born again in John 3. He speaks to Nicodemus. The living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you, you would have asked Him and He would give you streams of living water. Then He speaks of His relationship to the Father, that the Father is granted life in the Son and the Son is therefore able to give life to us all in John 5. And then the bread of life discourse, which is a great discourse that is so powerfully preached that it leads to a church of of 5,000 people a mega church, the first mega pastor who happened to empty his church right after he finished his sermon. Because he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And they all left. And not just the bread of life, the light of the world discourse in chapter 7 and 8. 
He's not just saying, I am the light of the world, but what does that mean to be the light of the world? The Good Shepherd discourse. I am the Good Shepherd who lays down His life for the sheep. And then He goes and speaks in the final discourse of His oneness with the Father. I and the Father are one. And so they picked up stones to stone the rock of ages. Seven discourses. Seven signs. Seven I am sayings. John is giving us a glimpse and he is saying there are many other signs in the presence of the disciples. And I suppose he could have said there are many other discourses in the presence of the disciples and there are many other sayings and many other this and many other that, but I have written these things for a specific reason. And what is that? That you may Believe. He uses the verb to have faith 100 times, I think, in this gospel. Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, all together, it's about 35 to believe. So John's writing probably a few decades after the synoptics were written. And what I think is happening is that there are people who believe, but there are also people who believe that are wavering in their belief. And maybe they're being persecuted and they're not being public about their faith or they're not thinking that Christ is worth it. And so he's writing these words so that Christians may believe. He's not writing something that faithful Christians can merely take out to unbelievers and hand it to them. It's not that in the first place. I'm not saying that isn't what's going on. What I am saying is I think most of the people to whom John is writing at this point are people who are perhaps backsliding or wavering and he is convincing them, do not go anywhere else. He is worth putting your faith in. He is worth following. He is the Christ, the Son of God. He's a Jewish person, John. I was reading, uh, there's a theological, uh, he's not a theological like in the terms we would understand, but he speaks of theology sometimes. He's a law, a Ben Shapiro, conservative uh, Jewish commentator. Uh, he went to Harvard Law and he, he, he does come across rather intelligent, uh, quite eloquent, good on his feet. And a lot of Christians love him because they, they love a good conservative guy who's smart. Not many of us, right? So <laughs> that's the rumor. Uh, and uh, he made this point this week, and it's, uh, it's interesting. He said, Judaism is not a proselytizing religion. Which is actually true when you think about it. We do not seek out converts. Which makes John a very bad Jew if Ben is right. Now, you tell me whether this is good news or bad news, and a lot will depend upon whether you believe Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is actually good theology or bad theology. He says, essentially, you get into heaven even if you're not Jewish. That's good news, I would say. But here's where it goes horribly astray. By fulfilling the seven laws of Noah. So you get into heaven by fulfilling the seven laws of Noah. No, no, not yours. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I... I think yours might be even worse than these. <laughs> but he says that the vast majority of people on earth already keep. Now, 
If you listen to Ben Shapiro complain about the world, it's amazing that he thinks the vast majority of people in the world are actually keeping these laws. But I digress a little bit. Here are the laws. No idolatry. Well, we're all good there, aren't we? None of us have committed idolatry. I can't even leave my house without committing idolatry. I can't even look at my wife this morning without committing idolatry. And then my children and a few other sins, they're in here. No blasphemy. Imagine Ben Shapiro thinking that all of these Muslims in the world are not blaspheming by their religion. But the majority of the people in the world actually are keeping all of these laws. No adultery. I suppose he's taking this in the classic pharisaical sense that unless you actually go and have intercourse with another woman, you're good. You can look, but you can't touch. No murder, which I take him to being... People aren't going out and slaughtering people. Do not steal. It's a little more tricky because there are so many ways in which people can steal. And do not eat the flesh of a living animal. Imagine being some poor sucker who one day had a moment of weakness and a chicken's running by and you just grab it and bite its leg off and, and you read this and you're like, wow, I'm 10 years old and I bit that chicken's leg off. He was alive, he kept running, he survived, but I ate the flesh of a living animal. I can't go to heaven. See how absurd religion gets? And then you have to establish courts of law because everyone establishes courts of law. The seven laws of Noah. Why isn't our friend Ben a proselytizing Jew? What's the answer? Why is he different than John, who clearly is a proselytizing Jew? What's the difference? Because Ben doesn't have a message that he feels you need to believe. And John does because he's seen Jesus Christ raised from the dead. The Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's why he's a proselytizing Jew. Because there's a message. And what is that message? That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Son of God, which is another way of calling Him the King, the true King. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, not just you may believe those things, but when you believe Jesus to be who He says Himself to be, you may have life in His name. And everyone in this world who's alive has life. But they either have life in their name or they have life in Christ's name. And you have to think about, if you're not a Christian, you're sitting here this morning and you're not really a Christian, what does having life in your name really give you? Where will you go? What assurances do you have? What hope do you have? What is the Gospel according to Frank? Are there any Franks here? I didn't want to unnecessarily call out Frank. He's visiting the church for the first time and he gets singled out for his Gospel. No Franks, I thought so. What Gospel could you write about your life? Maybe you could write some nice things. And maybe you'd be very selective. But what if that Gospel was the honest truth about your life? About your adultery? About your murder? About your theft? About your idolatry? What hope is that going to give you? And the answer is, there's no hope. 
There's no hope at all. And the world testifies to this no hope because the world is in absolute chaos right now. Everywhere you look. Do you know going to Walmart in the United States is not a safe place to go anymore? There can be fights breaking out just down in aisle three. Fight in aisle three. Sorry, we're dealing with the one in aisle seven. And then you go down the street and, and, and there's chaos on the street. And you can look overseas and there's chaos. And you can look at murder rates climbing. And you can look not only at the crime that's happening, the hatred that's happening towards fellow human beings. You can look at what? You can look at death happening everywhere. Disease happening everywhere. Tears everywhere. And it's miserable. And it's depressing. And it sometimes causes us to just want to say, what hope is there? But, what does John say? That you may believe. And by believing in Jesus, the Messiah, you may have life in His name. What is the life that John talks about? It's abundant life. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. It's not just abundant life, but it's resurrection life. It's abundant life, but it's life whereby even if you were to die, even if you were to get a disease, and even if you were to pass away, you have resurrection life. And it's not just resurrection life. It's not just abundant life. It's eternal life. It's forever and ever and ever. That's the life that John wants you to believe in. But he wants you to believe in it in such a way as it makes sense with the faith that John has been speaking about through the Gospel. You go right back to chapter 2. Many believed in Him, but He did not believe in them. Many said, let us make you our King, but He withdrew from them. What's John looking for? He's looking for the type of faith whereby you are casting yourself utterly and completely and relentlessly and persistently upon Jesus Christ. Because He alone, the great I Am, the One who is able to perform signs and wonders, He alone is worth casting yourself upon. Not just today, but every day. And so we can go and hand this Gospel out, and I praise God if you do, but don't hand this Gospel out until you yourself have come to grips with the realities that John is talking about for your own life. And what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is God's anointed. That He is the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And that by believing, that is by casting yourself upon Him, you will have resurrection, abundant, eternal life in His name. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank You for Your Word and for the Gospel and for Christ who is not merely a miracle worker. He is the revelation of God. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is life eternal. And we ask, O oh Lord, that we would remember each day that our life is hid with Christ on high and that we are, apart from Christ, dead. We may be walking, we may be breathing, but we are dead. But if we are in Christ, we are more alive than the rest of the world combined. For we have life eternal. 
We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Before we